Hi, everybody. Uh, welcome along to this week's show. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, if I am uh, more excitable than normal, that is because I am very close to hosting this weekend's BAFTA Film Awards, Sunday the 11th of April, from the Royal Albert Hall with the fabulous Dermot O'Leary, celebrating what has been a, uh, a testing, but also a brilliant year in terms of the wonderful films that we have had the opportunity to escape with. So I'm so grateful to all the... All the individuals, men and women around the world who've put in so much hard work to bring all those stories to us. And we kind of celebrate that within this week's episode, to be honest, because we don't just have one guest for you. Uh, oh, no, or even two. It's a three, four this week as we explore the wonder that is Sound of Metal. Nominated for six Oscars and four BAFTAs, including a shout for the extraordinary Riz Ahmed as Best Actor, Sound of Metal tells the story of a drummer, Ruben, who's going deaf with all the emotional trauma that that entails. And Riz is one of our three guests alongside director and co-writer Darius Marder, who's in the hunt for Best Picture and Best Original Screenplay at the Academy Awards, amongst other accolades. And we'll also hear from Darius's brother, Abe, who not only co-wrote the script, but also had the tricky job of articulating Ruben's descent into silence sonically as a composer on the film. Now we'll find out how the three of them approach the challenge in just a moment, but first, a word from our friends at LinkedIn. Now by all accounts, 2021 is looking up. There seems to be light at the end of what has been a very long tunnel. And one thing that has helped me cope with the pandemic is making this podcast and making it with the most amazing, inspiring team, namely Ben, who makes it sound so brilliant. Ben, thank you. So having the right people on your team is something that can inspire, I think, and really encourage creativity. And LinkedIn is one of the best places to help you find that team. It's an active community of professionals with more than 30 million members in the UK alone. So if you're now thinking ahead, maybe considering shifting your business hours or hiring more remote employees, LinkedIn jobs can help. You can post a job with targeted screening questions, which will get your role in front of the qualified candidates, helping you find the right person quickly. Then. When you need to manage your posts and contact candidates, you can do that from linkedin.com and you can also do all of this from your mobile device. And to lend a helping hand, we have arranged for your first job post to be free. LinkedIn Jobs can help you hire the right person faster. So when your business is ready to make that next hire, find the right person with LinkedIn Jobs and post a job for free. Just visit linkedin.com slash sound. Again, that's linkedin.com slash sound to post a job for free. Terms and conditions apply. And so to our Sound of Metal special. Now, before we get to Darius and Riz, let's hear one of Abe's cues, Audiology. Now, the score is yet to be commercially released, so we have to thank Abe massively for supplying us with it. And also to Matthew and Nonsuch Records, who gave us the all clear to use it. Thank you so, so much. It will be available to buy very, very soon, we promise. I'm going to say these words. I want you to repeat them back to me.
Thanks so much for your time. Really appreciate it. Rez, I was looking back. It was March the 31st last year that we spoke about the the long goodbye. And you said to me then, he goes, you were like, wait until you see Sound of Metal. Wait until you see it. And, oh, you were so right. It's an incredible film. Huge congratulations. Yeah, thank you. Well, I know, you know, you're so focused on obviously how music and sound is used in film. And I just remember even at the time kind of knowing that at the time of shooting that Darius was attending something quite special. And then having seen the film, I was like, I don't think I've kind of seen anything like this. Not at all. Darius, the, 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 the script is just, it's so rich and the characters are so real, you know, and, and the fact they live in this, you know, part of the film, they live in this, this kind of very enviable, amazing kind of uh, camper van, but you feel like you're there with them. You feel like you can kind of smell and making that breakfast and how disgusting that smoothie tastes and all that stuff. Yeah. You're, you, it, it's such a it's such a, a kind of inclusive experience as a as as a viewer. Was that in the script, basically? It is in the script in the sense that it's um it's a very descriptive, it's a very personal uh, story. But I would say even a little a little more than that. You know, even the concert and the scene before you're in the airstream is written as a scene itself. It's written as an intimate scene. So it's so it was always the intention that it be that it feel intimate. That's that's not really a concert. That's actually a scene, uh, a window into a couple, into that couple's dynamic on that stage. So yeah, I think in answer to your question, I think everything is in service of that that sort of intimacy. Where did the the seed of the idea come from? Am, am I right in thinking that it came from a from a real experience from a band that that you were you were filming with with Derek C in France? If that's right, that's right, and. You know, there are a lot of ideas at play in the film, but the original spark came from that wonderful documentary that Derek was shooting that then I, I kind of took some of this footage now 12 years ago and started cutting this footage. And while I was cutting it, started playing with a sound perspective, this, this POH, as I've been calling it, this point of hearing. And that was I was doing it in a really lo-fi way. And, but I got incredibly excited about it, about this cinematic language. And then eventually I just kind of started it from the ground up and wrote it, wrote it like for years. I really was because I was so excited about this concept that it just took so long to, to build the characters to a place of undeniability. Uh, and that really took off when I invited my brother Abraham into the writing process. And we just worked and worked and worked on these characters until they felt raw. And did you know that because there's the, the, the sound and the music, there's so many kind of, I've got so many questions flying around in my head that I want to, I want to ask, but even something like the, the genre of music that they play as a band, that in itself, I think is a kind of insight into their characters, even before we learn anything about them. You know, we, we see them on stage and we see this kind of, this the, the kind of raw energy and and the the kind of anger that's there as well and it tells you a lot about them without us even even having sort of seen much of them or, or seen much of them as a as a couple or, or that kind of thing that's right you know i remember some producers saying to me way back like now could this music be a little more accessible could it be a little no and i always was like no it really can't and not only that but um, you know, even the name of the song is Purify, and the chorus, that, and the word that, that 
that Lou screams is purified, that there's something in that experience that is like an exorcism. It's they're exorcising these demons. That's their place to do it. It, it needs to be that. That's the essence of, of what they're doing together. have a lot of mates who are drummers and um you absolutely pardon the pun but smash it as a drummer well, thanks okay so it's so i mean the performance is extraordinary it really is and congratulations on all the recognition you're getting quite rightly so and and there, there'll be a lot more on its way but it's just it's such a it's such a beautiful performance but the the drumming is extraordinary how long are we talking how how many are we months of, of practice and preparation i mean you're a natural <laughs> Well, it's very kind of to say, but I certainly was not a natural that first time that I picked up those drumsticks. And I thought I might have a bit of rhythm, you know, as a rapper, but that's very different to doing coordinating four limbs, uh, limbs to the same, to different, you know, rhythms. And uh, yeah, I mean, it was it was a long process. It was seven months um, with wow. my drum teacher, Guy Lekata, where we just drummed every day for seven months, you know, um, for a couple of hours every day. And, and I actually... Um, Darius's son very kindly didn't really have a choice in the matter but I stole his drum kit as well <laughs> and took that home so uh, shout out Israel for that it was it was um, it was a kind of all-in process I think that's kind of partly what I was looking for in, in a project like this as I think how Darius likes to work as how we kind of you know created this we, we all just went on a on a really immersive journey where we went all in and yeah learned the drumming and the sign language for seven months and went to you know addiction circles and stuff for, for seven months and then so that w when we were at the point of shooting Darius was bringing a decade of preparation at that point I was bringing the best part of a year so we could just then really surrender to the process and allow spontaneous things to happen yeah because sometimes when you don't feel like you're prepared you try and control stuff Mm -hmm. And actually, when the more prepared you are, the more you can let things happen. Well, I mean, you're a performer anyway. You know, I, I was, I am, I, um, I mean, Mogul Mowgli, incredible again. You know, what a year it's been for you. Into, you know, the year, we're in a new year, I know, but you know what I mean. But just in terms of, you know, you're, you're, you're a natural performer in that side of things as well. You know, being on the stage in front of an audience. But this was a different 
a different thing in terms of being this drummer within this band. You know, within this film, you're playing a character, but you're also performing. It's almost like a music video within a film. You know, it's kind of it's quite a lot of layers to it in a way as well. When you're doing something like the like that scene, are you are you approaching it like I'm a drummer in a band and that's as far as I'm going with this character to this point? Because you obviously know what's happening to him further down the line, but you try not to allow that journey to influence where he is at that point. Ooh, yeah, it's tricky, isn't it? It's like every scene has to have the DNA of the whole story in it. And that's something that Darius and I would kind of speak about. And I think every scene in an amazing script, like the one Darius wrote, which was just so blinding on his first read even, it does. So so in a way, if it's a really well put together story, you can just trust that moment and commit to the truth of that moment. And actually somewhere in it, the, the transaction taking place between the two characters or the arc of the scene or uh, the need at the root of the scene does somehow kind of portray and do justice to the whole arc of the story. So, you know, it's one of the privileges of, working with an amazing script, an amazing director, amazing co-stars, is that you can fully just do all that crazy prep and then you can just be really present knowing that the work is there and the script will kind of hold you in a way. We also shot chronologically, which, which really helps you do that as well because Riz was able to really do exactly what you're saying was to go on that journey. So be in music mode, be in concert mode, and then move on. So you have to learn the drums, then you have to form a band with Olivia. You guys, I imagine, have to rehearse and find your, you know, find your thing, find your presence on stage as a duo and and what that is. And was that something that you rehearsed quite a lot? Obviously, I imagine there was a fair bit of, of finding out what that was as a unit. There was, yeah. And again, you know... This process had been set up, like Darius was saying, of like we're going to shoot chronologically so that it feels for real. You know, when you're getting to scene number D, you've done A, B, and C before that. You've lived through it. But also, you're going to play a real gig in front of a real audience, and you guys are going to form a real band. What's your band called? And let's get some merch for your band. He really pushed us to kind of think in these terms so that so that we, we were kind of a band, and we had we did a lot of rehearsals with Guy, um, uh, Licata, Licata, and also Margot. Chardier and um, her uh, band Pharmacon. And so they were kind of our mentors throughout mm. that process of, of rehearsal. But re- rehearsals got intense, man. It was a lot, <laughs> uh, a lot, of, lot of things flying around. You know. That's an understatement, man. It was so intense. I mean, there was, a, there was an incredibly rigid training construct that was set up for both uh, Riz and Olivia. You know, Guy is like a mad scientist, and frankly, so is Margaret. And so they devised this whole system that involved software and countdowns and, and breaking the whole piece down into, into groups. So these guys were like working this and working this. And then, they, and then they started working together and rehearsing and rehearsing and rehearsing. And as we get closer to the shoot, these guys are getting connected to each other vis-a-vis the music, which is really wonderful, but also more and more freaked out because... It was such an audacious undertaking that, you know, even the day before we shot, they, you guys were in such a tizzy because it was so hard to accomplish this. And by the time the day arrived, you played better by three times than you'd ever played before. Like it's something about the energy. The actually. adrenaline. Yeah, the adrenaline of being in a club and having an audience. of, And it wasn't just an audience of extras. It was it was 
music lovers, and specifically noise music, metal music, industrial. So it was really, really cool. That's mental. That's I mean, you're. It, it's like you know, I've I've watched a lot of bands in in sweaty venues like that, the bar flying Camden and stuff, being being one that I frequented a lot and. I can't imagine how, because, you know, those those bands have had years to get to that point where they get on a stage like that in an audience. And how you both have managed to accomplish that in such a short space of time might seem long to you, but it's just so, so brilliant. Who wrote the songs? My brother actually worked on that song forever with, um, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, years. And he had, he had very, he worked with this guy, Harry Cantwell, who, is this incredible metal drummer uh, from San Francisco. Really yeah. amazing, really amazing drummer. And he developed this song that was so out of reach. I mean, technically so obscene that um, I, after <laughs> I didn't even show you the video of it, Riz, when we were prepping, because it would have just, you would have just walked away. But <laughs> then it, he kind of refined and refined. And then he uh, really worked with Margaret Chartier of Pharmacon to take that song and bring it to a place of playability, but way stretching the boundaries of doability, like something that was incredibly ambitious, but also achievable, which was hard to find that line, you know? Yeah. So after refining it, but in, in truth, my brother worked on that song, that first song for years, I had, you know, years developing that song. It's a really, uh, and then also Olivia and Margaret also wrote, um, some of the lyrics for it, which I really wanted. I really wanted Olivia to live into those lyrics. Yeah. So many of them are hers, and she's credited in the in the credits for that. That's awesome. that kind of little moment we have of them in the in the slipstream with the the records you know playing the music and the records and I just wanted to ask about those choices and and if that was if that was something that was in the script or whether there was conversations about what those would be because I think you sing along to some of them so they obviously had to be cleared and kind of you know within part of the film before you filmed sort of thing well the Commodore's song the so there's so there's a Commodore's song that they dance to that's real time that's like in real time, Ruben, you remember this, you pick out the album, put it on the turntable, everything in that Airstream worked. You could mix an album in that Airstream. Wow. All of the, all of the components were real, I mean, geeky real, like, uh, you know, compressors, everything, uh, and it worked. And, you know, so they put on the Commodores, that was a song that I think I picked out from them because 
I, I love how cheesy and, and staggering <laughs> it is because metal musicians that I've known and met and hung with, they don't listen to metal in their downtime. <laughs> yeah. uh, that was wonderful. And we really used that like live audio, you know, in the room, in the moment. They sing the meatloaf song in the, in, so in the air game. and uh, of course you get Olivia like that is such a wonderfully improvised line where you're like R R Ruben says what's the thing he won't do <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's such a great scene but that was improvised was it that whole that scene yeah that's Olivia Olivia Cook who's just like got banter for days she's from Oldham <laughs> she's just got Full of hardcore northern banter. She's hilarious. Well, we had we had stolen the airstream. Uh, we had to steal <laughs> the airstream uh, because there are so many rules, union rules, in especially in Massachusetts. And, and if you've met the union guys in Massachusetts, <laughs> you do not want to fuck with them. So, we, um, and as a matter, of, so we had to, and you know, you're supposed to have police in every single town that you go through police escorts, each different police escorts for each town. I didn't tell you this when we were shooting Riz. <laughs> it's all coming out now, isn't it? It's like the third thing you're like, well, we didn't tell you this. <laughs> the thing about this movie is if you aren't punk rocking this movie, you're missing yeah. the point, right? Exactly. But we, did, we had to steal the Airstream and the camera to take that drive um, because they were both against union rules. And at one point while you're driving Riz, we Asked a union guy in a car who rolls his window down and goes, What the fuck are you guys doing? And we're like, Nothing, you know. <laughs> I love that. I, I wanted to ask how much of the, you know, kind of we go on this, this, this tour with them and how much of that was real and how much kind of traveling around you did. Well, I had in my greatest fantasy, I wanted these guys to live in that airstream for like a month together and to drive <laughs> around. And it turns out it was impossible. We did, you know, the, the great news is I hate in movies when, you know, the people aren't really driving and they look away from the roads from, you know, too long and all this. But Riz drove that thing and that was a huge beast. And we took a, a we, we took some wonderful drives together and, and basically spent a good bit. We spent a ton of time in the Airstream, didn't we? But the, on the driving itself, it was like 
a weekend of driving. Yeah, I love that um, kind of improvised sort of conversation that they're having as we as they're on the trip sort of thing and and the Jeff Goldblum conversation and, and all that. It's just <laughs> it's. It's so it's such a beautiful insight into their relationship and their intimacy and their how they are with each other and and then we go into this second act almost in terms of and the whole sound changes and it's so my aunt used to be a a, a teacher for for deaf kids and so whenever we would go to visit her in Doncaster for birthdays and things she would always have like little town hall gatherings with a band playing and and all the kids that she would teach would always come and the kids would always just have the most amazing experience from feeling the reverberations and the sounds of the music as opposed to hearing them. And those are some of the moments for me that I found so moving um, was the, the slide scene with the little kid where, where, he's, where you're, you're tapping on the, you're playing the drums for him as he's got his, his head, I think, on the, on the drum, on the, the top of the slide, sorry. And I just think the way you've captured the moments of the world for you know people who lose their hearing i think it's so there's so much truth in it and i can't imagine how you started to represent that sonically it's kind of what i'm trying to get at because we we're in this world where he can hear and but you there are certain things that you tune into so the the sound of the aircon the sound of the record player going on the sound of the smoothie maker the the panting even when he's doing his exercises and his press-ups, you know, the sounds are heightened almost to remind us that we can hear all this and then suddenly it's just taken from him. How did how did you work out how you were going to approach that and represent that change for him within the film? But then Riz, also for you in terms of playing the character that that was the experience that he was going through, did you have a physical thing that you, to to help with that? Sorry, it's such a long, convoluted question. Oh, it's great. Well, Riz can talk about the physical circumstances that we created to experience a different sonic reality. I will just say from a, um, what you're talking about is, is, is great. It, it, the, the idea of the slide, the idea that there's this really primal transmission. I, I, I remember the day that that scene dawned on us and, and writing that scene it, it was so viscerally, I could feel it so viscerally, just the connection between two souls vis-a-vis this vibration. And what's really interesting to me about that scene is Ruben takes a giant leap. That scene ushers him into an entirely new mentality, actually. And we take that leap with him. So it was always about understanding that visceral quality of human connection, that 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 in its essence is the thing that that you know we connect to that connection to each other and we always have throughout all time as humans you know drums being that thing that we've had forever but and you're right that invisible force that sound that vibration that connects us and so i just thought this is an extraordinary cinematic way to to celebrate human connection and can it be achieved and that was the question can it can we feel it? Um, and then the actual creation of that sound and that scene was actually very complicated. <laughs> wow, I'll bet. Because then you also feel that absolute uncomfortableness. You kind of it makes you it makes your kind of skin crawl in a way when 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 he has the you know the 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 implant turned on as an audience. You kind of you feel the the kind of uncomfortableness for him from your choices of what 
how you're representing that. It's so clever. It's so powerful. Well, that, that experience is actually very real, first of all. I mean, cochlear implants, when you first get them, they're not fun. Mm. Uh, they, they can feel really joyful and miraculous, maybe especially if you've never heard sound before. But if you've heard sound before, and especially if you're a, an audiophile as Ruben is, that's a, that's a horrendous circumstance to find yourself in, especially if you were expecting a miracle or a fix. And, and that's very real. In fact, it's tame in the movie compared to what it would be in real life. It's it's a very very difficult. You're, it, it's still a miracle procedure, and there's and the movie doesn't judge it. It's just factual. It, it's mm. hard. Your brain has to has to kind of. Uh, but what an extraordinary journey to create that sound. And Riz, what about you? And did you, did you, how did you kind of explore that? Yeah, that? well, Darius and uh, I discussed uh, this, and he had this great idea of using kind of hearing aids that were uh, modified to emit white noise and place them deep inside my ear canal. And often on set, I would have them in the whole day and we'd be communicating, you know, on bits of paper or whatever. And the result of that is that it cuts off all sound, including the sound of your own voice, which is very, you know, uh, unbalancing physically and psychologically. And um, for those moments, those sections of the film where Ruben really isn't at peace with his deafness, um, we use those, you know, and in those sections of the film where he realizes deafness may also be a kind of a culture rather than disability and a way to connect more to others and himself than he ever has. We, we didn't use those audio blockers. And they come with controls that Darius could, in the middle of a scene, activate them, oh, um, wow. you know, for the burst of tinnitus. And, you know, they could increase in intensity and volume during an, an emotional scene. So it was all part of, I think, th this approach that he had of wanting to make, make it all just for, as for real as possible. That's extraordinary. Yeah, it was very visceral. And it, and it, was, and it was remarkable what it did, you know, 
the movie is really from an able-bodied perspective in a way, you know, it's forcing all of us who, who are, who take our hearing for granted into a place of being out of control. You know, we don't know the language. And so for all of the hearing people that watch this movie, that's the process they go through. But as a director, I also had to go through that process in real time with Riz because we couldn't communicate easily, uh, even in between shots because he had the, these blockers in. So yeah, we were writing things down. We were, you know, trying to find a way to communicate. And it was a very intense process. And I think for the whole crew watching us do this, they're just shaking their heads. Going, <laughs> well, the, the hard work and the commitment to it is, is, is paid off in, in Reams. It is an extraordinary film. It's so powerful and moving and, and kind of necessary as well to give a voice to to that world, really, you know, and, and address it in the way that you have. I think it's really, really really important and it's it's um it's a wonderful wonderful film and Riz it's been a joy over the past 12 months just to to watch all these great roles that you've taken on and um I look forward to seeing what's next from both of you thank you so much for your time guys thanks Edith thank you bye guys see ya take care bye soundtrack to Sound of Metal, that's Set Amour, Me Too. Rounding off the first part of soundtracking with Darius Marder and Riz Ahmed. Next, we bring you the man who not only co-wrote the film, but also scored it, Darius's brother Abe. And it's with one of Abe's cues that we'll begin this second part, Last Threads. Thanks so much for taking the time. It's so great because I've I, I had a lovely chat with um with Darius and Riz together. 
So I just wanted to to kind of have the final piece to that puzzle, really, in terms of this extraordinary film. So thank you for taking the time to to let me pick your brain about it. Yeah, pleasure. Huge congratulations on quite rightly all the recognition the the film is getting. It's uh it's an incredibly powerful piece of filmmaking. And I loved how I love how when I reached out to you, you said I had so many jobs on this film. Run me through some of those jobs, uh, if you wouldn't mind, Dave. I asked that question of you, what what might we be hitting on? Because I've been very unprepared. Sometimes I think it's going to be a music thing. And then it's like, so take me to scene one. What, what did that word mean? I'm like, you mean that word I wrote in 2012? Wow. I have no idea. No, no recollection. But yeah, so obviously started with a screenplay and many years ago. I'm sure Darius told you, but he he started it years before that. I came on board, you know, me and Darius, obviously we're brothers and we've been talking together for forever and talking <laughs> about stories. It's kind of a unique thing with me and Darius, you know, like he he's nine years, I think nine years older than me. Mm-hmm. And when I was younger, he was a bit of a, you know, he was kind of almost like a father figure at points in my life. And he he really brought me into film. He was like my little film class, you know, (laughs) he taught me about, um, you know, five easy pieces and out of Africa and the Godfather and all these kind of classics. And, you know, when I was probably arguably too young to understand, but it was pretty amazing because he, he, he always talked about, you know, it's like, well, I wonder why they said that, that line, you know, that movie's almost perfect, but then that character says that line at that moment and it doesn't feel true. And he was just always this kind of um, guiding light of truth. And, yeah. and that had a huge effect on me. So we've always gone back and forth throughout the years as I've been, I've always been a songwriter. And so I would share my songs and he would share whatever he was working on. So when we came together on this film, it was very natural thing, even though I had no experience screenwriting. It was kind of just a conversation that started and, oh, hey, that's fun. Well, I guess it's almost kind of nice in a way, like you were saying there, where you, you know, you're coming to to things almost with a decade's difference of, of age and experience. And so when you approach writing a script together, you're coming at it slightly differently. And because you're two individual people, you're coming at it with slightly different emotional context to characters or situations or, or things like that. And I was really interested to, to, to find out how, what that working relationship on the script was like, you know, in terms of, was it very much conversational when you would, you would sit and, and polish it and, and craft it? Yeah. <laughs> well, and, and again, those are some of the differences between me and Darius. Like um, we talked a ton, we walked and drank coffee and talked a lot. And that was, that was some of the, the best times, you know, just endlessly. Sometimes we would talk for months without barely writing, you know, if we were, if we really needed to get through some things. Mm-hmm. Uh, Darius in particular is kind of, he always gives himself a hard time. He says, you know, I just can't write if something isn't feeling true or if I'm missing something, I just can't, you know, I can try to write, but I'm not going to keep it. So sometimes he works really well when he can really talk through things. So we did a ton of talking and walking for months. And then um, when we would sit down, um, you know, this story, this film was always Darius's film, you know, and I always knew he was going to direct it. So 
it always kind of came from that place of him writing forward in the story. And I would start in scenes with dialogue and really feel into, and that's really what I loved is to feel into the, the dialogue and the sort of poetry of scenes. And I would obsess for months on a scene and he would just be like, what the hell are you doing? And then he, he gives me a hard time because he, 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 because I gave him a hard time. It's like, all right, I spent three months on that scene and then you took it out and I didn't know you took it out. Um, you let me know. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, but it, but it was really good in that way because we really did have different focuses. Mm. I'm married to a musician. He's he's in a band, and so I have a, you know, I've I've been on the road. I've I've I kind of see what that life for musicians is like, and you know, and I love how you have the the you know those little moments as well in the film where you where the, there's the kind of a, a hierarchy of who gets to sound check next sort of thing, you know, in terms of the support and things like that. Those tiny little moments, but they add such authenticity to that world and that life. And and I've been privy to to that world. So I, I kind of it just made it all the more truthful and beautiful, really, as well. I thought it was extraordinary. And I, and I wanted to ask whether, you know, your own experiences as a musician to that world sort of did pay heavily to to the authenticity of it and really crafting that world and making it feel real and and look real as well in terms of how that was written into the script. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I think definitely there were different components. Like um, me and Darius were always big believers in bringing people on board that knew a lot more than us. And, you know, there were musicians involved, like Sean Powell was a big, uh, he's a drummer from uh, Surfboard and Ice Balloons. And he's just an amazing guy. And he had a lot of uh, effect on Riz's character. You know, they spent a lot of time together. He smashed it as the drummer. Yeah. Oh, I mean, it was on, I couldn't believe it. I remember because I spoke to Riz uh, at the start of last year about another film, Mogul Mowgli, that he, he's in, which is, is brilliant as well. And he was like, wait until you see Sound of Metal. I'm like, he's like, I'm playing drums. And I'm like, wow, I can't wait to see that. And he was really self-deprecating about it. And it's like, smashed it. Absolutely. Even just that side of it, you know, in terms of being believable as a really good drummer in a band. Well, that's, that's Riz and that's his drum teacher, Guy Licata, like just incredible. Those two together. And it really is those two together. I mean, they're both just total freaks and <laughs> so specific and dogmatic about how they do things. And that's the kind of stuff that me and Darius could have never helped with. You know, that's a certain authenticity there. And then Sean Powell was the strummer from these other bands, and he brought in this sort of emotional authenticity mm. for uh, Riz to draw on. And then Olivia had... Um, Margaret from Pharmacon. I don't know if you're aware of Pharmacon. Yeah. 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 And we've, you know, we've been obsessed with Pharmacon for years and we always wanted to bring some side of that music into their music. Um, so we were able to bring her in and she's incredible. And she got Olivia to this point where she could scream and live loop her parts on stage in a matter of weeks. I mean, I have no idea how they did what they did. <laughs> um, but purely from Margaret, who's such a genuine artist. And mm. so there were those two, those three. And then, and then I spent years writing like kind of misguided descriptions of analog equipment 
and every single piece of equipment in that airstream was gone over and there was a reason why Ruben had that piece and you know could he afford it why why did he want it wow how it related to the sound design of the film and the score which changed but it was we really had to know why Ruben was how he was obsessed with sound and what significance that had because he was going to lose sound and we always wanted those things to kind of play together at what point were you were you starting to think about you know the the, the music and the and the sound of this film because it's there are so many different areas of it you know there's the band's music that they have to perform live in the in the film there's the score and then also this really physical i had such a physical reaction to the way that the Darius chose to kind of manipulate the the sound. What you know, once Riz loses, well, what you know, once the character Ruben loses his his hearing, but then with that journey he goes through, you know, with the the implant and all that kind of thing. It's such a physical response as a you know as a person watching this film. It kind of really jolts you at times as well. Yeah, but all those things have to fit together. They all have to connect seamlessly as well. Um, and they do beautifully. But at what point did you start thinking about this this band? You know, were they the first thought in terms of what kind of band they would be, what they would sound like, what they would be singing about, what, you know, the energy they would have? Sorry, there's so many questions in that one question. <laughs> no, I mean, it, but it, it all fits together. And for Darius and I, it always came from a place of like deep emotionality of this character and the sound started there. So it was never about technicality. It was always just about emotionality. And, and for um, the band, that changed a lot through the years. You know, we had so many different things that lit us up, but we always knew it had to be, you know, something deeply loud and resounding and something that you could feel in your body. And it was always really important that that was an undercurrent. But we started to build, I'm trying to think back now. <laughs> We started with, you know, um, the first band was Jucifer, and that was started with Derek C. and Francis' film version of Metalhead. Yeah. Yeah. And so that was an amazing starting place. And then we, you know, I came in and I was kind of like, I I never had a close uh, relationship to metal. So I was kind of always urging Darius. I'm like, can't we like take it in a slightly different direction? <laughs> and he was like, well, no, the point is this, you know? And, um, and over the years, I kind of like, I think we, we, we were always kind of fighting about that in a you know, <laughs> way. And then when we, when we learned about Pharmacon, I think that was the point when we both kind of felt like, all right, that's a meeting in the middle. Like that's, that's the kind of vibe.
And then in terms of that music turning into sound design and that music turning into perspective, um, that started really early in the script too with um, these vast descriptions of, again, like the equipment and that they used and you would start in the show and then you would move to Ruben and the Airstream working on equipment. And then he was putting, you know, atmospheric sounds through the equipment, you know, like some old spring reverb and that spring reverb sound would, um, would turn into something low and brooding, which would take you out to the road and the Airstream would fly by. And, but these were these long descriptions of sound that didn't even end up in the screenplay, most of them. Yeah. Um, but they formed everything. And then later, you know, Darius, I don't know if people will ever, ever know this, but he, he really surprised me in the actual editing of everything because I was obsessed with, we both were, but maybe me in particular about writing sound and maybe too much. And he was always kind of, you know, working with it, but taking out things and be like, all right, we got a story to tell here. You can't just have 30 <laughs> pages on sound design or you know, sounds. So at times I was was like, man, is this guy like, is he locked in on this? Like, how's it, how, what's he going to do with this thing? Once, you know, maybe, maybe he's just going to tell a straight up story and the sound perspective won't have that as much to do with it. And then Jesus Christ, was I wrong? Um, once we got into the, once I saw the first cut, I was like, oh, all right, this guy's on a mission. And I don't know if anyone quite understood the mission he was on, like how specific it was, you know, mm. he, he knew that you could only use perspective, a deaf perspective so much that you would lose the, the viewer and it wasn't really the point. So he was really dogmatic about only using it so many times. And it's actually really not used that much in the film. It yeah. might feel as though it is, but it isn't. It's in very few scenes. Um, it's really about keeping the, the quiet and the naturalism between that and not kind of having score or other things take you out in, out of that experience. So it's all about being within. It's really clever because those short and few moments where you do have that kind of, you know, Ruben's audible perspective of the kind of, you know, of, of what that is. It's almost like subtitles, you know, when you start reading a subtitle film and you forget you're reading subtitles after a while. 
you're introduced to that world, his sonic world, and then you don't need to be reminded that that's what it sounds like. And we just hear his conversation. It's so clever, but it so works because you still feel the, you know, the kind of the anxiety and the frustration and, and all those emotions that he's going through whilst it happens. It's so clever. Yeah. And he, man, he had to fight with everyone. I mean, because I would come to him and be like, why didn't you go to perspective here? And he'd be like, well, we, there is no, you know, perspective is shot in a particular way. And there's mm-hmm. no perspective. We shot what we shot and we shot it for a reason. And there's no perspective shot there. It's like, yeah, but you can just have a shot of his face from here and go to perspective. I feel like you need it. And it's like, nope, we don't. We shot what we shot and we shot it from this direction, which means perspective. And that's a language. Um, and that's what it is. And man, he fought with everyone about that. And I think everyone at a certain point was like, you know, why is this guy like, there's no room for flexibility with this perspective. Um, but it's really why it works. I mean, and, and the brilliant sound team and the mixers and, you know, Nicholas sound designer and, and all that. But like, I really think the simple knowing of how that's used is really Darius. And it's pretty phenomenal. How is it writing music for songs? I mean, they're not an imaginary band, but they're a fictional band. You know, how, how is that? Because you have to, you know, your your mindset has to get into, because I, I, I mean, I know that Olivia got involved as did Margaret, you know, in terms of sort of lyrical side of things as well, which is, which is fantastic because, you know, in terms of what you were saying about Margaret really almost given Olivia perspective of who this character should be and could be sort of thing then yeah. that's amazing that they then the collaboration element that's there to to really enhance that and allow her to explore that side of it was that always going to be the case yeah I mean there were so many people involved through the years that um I won't say all of them but there was some amazing people involved you know god nearly 10 years ago and they were going to write the music for the band and it was going to be this thing. And then um, at a certain point, I tried to get uh, Margaret involved years ago and then that didn't work out. And mm-hmm. then I kind of searched for all these different people. And I, at a certain point, went to my brother and said, listen, like no one else, if we can't have those people, you know, I'm, I'm just going to work on it because I feel like I know what I want it to be and maybe we can bring people in later. So I spent years actually working on it with this drummer, Harry Cantwell, mm-hmm. who's amazing kind of black metal drummer. And we worked together on the music and I, I got really obsessed with, you know, what kind of music Lou was going to make and her whole backstory, which is somewhat obscure in the film. You learn a bit, but me and Darius, you know, we wrote a whole script just for her. So there's a whole, there's a whole story of, of her. Oh, well, the Lou prequel. Please make the Lou prequel. I would love to watch that. Well, Darius was, at one point, he was, he was thinking of secretly making the two films at once. I, he probably doesn't want me to share that, but, um, <laughs> but, he, but he didn't. And it was amazing enough that he pulled off the one. But yeah, the, the Lou, we were just so, we were so in love with this character and, and her story, which is pretty heartbreaking and... Um, and we just just always thought she was such a beautiful person and and the music was profound and what she was singing about you know there was always a deep undercurrent of her loss and her loss of her mother and 
And so that on stage performance for us and for me always wanted to be, you know, almost her singing to, to that mother that she lost. And, uh, and so that's kind of what I passed on to Margaret and Olivia when they came on. I gave a bunch of lyrics and a bunch of stuff and then they just said, do what you want with it. They did their own thing. And I think it, wow. it all worked together to make something great, I think. Yeah. And then was, it, was there always going to be, you know, we've got some, there's some great needle drops in there as well. I mean, I love that in the Airstream when they're dancing. It's just, it's such a beautiful, mm. beautiful part of, the, part of the film. But with regards to, to score and there being score and if score was necessary and, and what were the conversations are, are, around that and how that would, how that would work really? Yeah, score was always an uh, interesting conversation with the film because, you know, I had moments where I would kind of plead with Darius not to have any score. Do you mind me asking why? I think I always felt like the language was so, was meant to be so intimate um, and the sound experience um, was meant to be so intimate in the film. And me and Darius always wanted it to feel m more like a European film than an American film like where score and um, is these cues are kind of taking you through. You really didn't want that. And it's so easy just to be distracted by score as much as I love it. Of course, if it's not done carefully, it, it's so easy to be distracted. So we really wanted this to be a natural experience. And um, so the score started, um, I brought in a lot of pieces and Nicola brought in a lot of pieces too, um, you know, because he's a co-composer and also sound designer. And that was intentional because I think what we realized early on is that the score needed to, score and sound design needed to really blend together. And you didn't always know where one started and one ended. And that was kind of our compromise with bringing score into the film is it just needed to be felt more than heard in a way, you know? Yeah. And that had everything to do with, you know, often losing a lot of the high frequencies that, you know, there might be an instrument that has some beautiful high frequency that would say, oh, that's a violin, obviously, or that's this. And we took all the high frequency out. So what you're left with is the vibrations that you feel in your body. And so the score is often about moving you into perspective, into Ruben's deaf perspective, and um, giving a feeling of the anxiety of being inside his body and the anxiety and the panic of what he's going through early in the movie. This is not sound like you remember. film that sort of anxiety as he starts to center 
and learn how to exist in a different way in the deaf community. The score is meant to bring you out finally and blend in more with nature and the trees and wind. And so we worked really gently to work with the sound design and not to work around the sound design. It really is part of the sound design. Another thing that I think's very clever with the film as well is the is are the themes that are going on as well and the, the the kind of narratives that are going on and you don't even necessarily realize that they are there like addiction obviously being a being part of the narrative but 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 the way that you've been able to tell a story about addiction without seeing any drugs or seeing any I think it's so it makes it even more uh real and effective I think as well yeah, it's so kind of subtly done, but it's but it weirdly kind of makes it even more powerful. Yeah, I mean, that was a big thing we played with a lot is how far could this character go? And I think we always knew it just wasn't the point if this guy was going to relapse or, you know, in that deaf community or do all those things you might expect. We knew who this character was and he wasn't going to come back from that. So yeah. it just wasn't an option for him. He couldn't, yeah. he couldn't relapse. And it wasn't about that. I think what always interested us the most is this addiction that we that we all have, you know, all these addictions that we have in, in our own ways and maybe don't even recognize some of the time. Um, yeah. These things we use to, to fight off being, you know. Yeah. And I, I loved how, how almost, you know, this, this, this horrendous thing that happens to him, he loses his hearing, but one of the good things to come out of that is that it, it kind of saves him from that and you know the addiction side of things without him really realizing and it's I love that kind of that sort of circle yeah you know he doesn't realize the good that's coming out of this situation in a way I just thought it was just beautiful yeah yeah it's it's funny when I think about that his Ruben's experience in that deaf community I'm it's so interesting after the fact to have this movie out there and to look back at this long process of writing and making and um and to see where all that really like to suddenly be like oh that's where that came from in that story mm. or, you yeah know, and i just see so much of darius and i um but a, a lot of darius you know like he uh he you know he was a teacher when he was like 19 or 20 and um he had so much Reuben in him, you know, he was really out on the edge. He was like a, yeah. you know, he didn't go to college. He, I don't know how, I think he talked his way into <laughs> graduating high school, but he really, I don't think he ever wrote a paper. He was really out there. He was really fighting authority always. And, and he really was a version of Reuben. But then Joe in that community, Darius is also that, you know, he, yeah. he really was Joe's voice in this story. And he's been that for so many people. Um, he was a teacher and he was that way for me, you know, when I was young, he sort of 
rescued me at various times when I was, you know, in a bad way. So yeah, it's, it's pretty beautiful for me to look back on that and just see like all the different ways we ended up in that thing without knowing yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. Before we finish, you've got to talk about green as well. Oh, that song. It's so gorgeous. It's, it's, Thank yeah, you. it's beautiful. And I, I just wanted to talk about the idea of the, of it being an original song for the film, but, but it absolutely being part of the film, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. And when the idea to, to create that song came about and also what point of view is it as well? Because every time I listen to it, I almost, I kind of, I don't know, it kind of, it, it tells me different stories, I guess. Yeah. Oh, that's cool. That, well, those are my favorite kind of songs. So that's a huge <laughs> compliment. Well, I've always been, I think the best songs I've written have always come from a place of improvisation. I've been improvisationally songwriting since I was really young. And what I always find when I'm doing that is that things come out and I like them and I don't quite know where they fit or where they came from. And then years later, I'll work on them a ton and I'll try to shape them into something. And then I'll kind of suddenly be like, oh, that's what that meant. Or it's something that happens later that I didn't understand, you know, because I think we all have that ability to kind of see into the future a bit if we're open to it, you know, from our subconscious. Um, and green really is that, you know, I started it years ago in the beginning of Sound of Metal wow. and Darius heard it at various points and I was working on it. And then at a certain point, we had a classical piece, a piece of piano music in the credits, which was really a lovely piece. But uh, we went to various screenings and it, uh, it just wasn't hitting like the credits were rolling and it was nice, but no, it just wasn't doing, I think, what Darius most wanted. He always wanted that credit sequence to be almost like a last scene because you leave Ruben in such an ambiguous place in a way. And I think he wanted something a little extra leave you with so he mentioned that song and i was just horrified because i was like oh you want to hear my voice to be the last thing to cut that silence <laughs> um to ruin your movie after 13 years oh come on it's to say you thank you to... for sticking <laughs> with it <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well yeah of course but that's how i felt anyway and uh so it was really scary at first but then i started working on it and oh yeah maybe that could work and then i i did a lot more writing on it so it didn't have an end and so i had to really sit with that final cut and we only had i think like we had a 10 days or so to record it and get it in and then it went to amazon and then it was like out so um it was a really quick turnaround but i worked with this producer thomas bartlett who is amazing he's um you know worked with sufian stevens and saint vincent and He's awesome. But uh, we came together and we did this, went into studio one day and made this song. And I just said, do whatever you want. Like, this is the idea. This is the film. He hadn't seen it. but And he made this really lovely song. And I took it home and I thought, okay, that's a lovely song. It doesn't feel like the, the credit song, but it, it's really lovely. So what can we do? So I took out everything and took the piano he had and took it down an octave and took off a lot of the high frequency to bring it to kind of make it feel like it was in deaf perspective and sent it back to him. And he said, can we do anything with this? Um, I know it's not as impressive. And he said, oh, okay, yes, I get it. Okay, now I get it. Um, and then he <laughs> went to town and he put on that vocal effect, which really recalled the, um, the cochlear implant. 
from the film, which was intentional. And I just said to him, like all the, all the um, instrumentation you bring in, just keep, you know, keep it rolled off on the high end, keep everything really muted. And then we brought in sound design from the deaf community of rain and, um, uh, you know, laughter and thunder mm-hmm. to close us out the song. So every piece of it was, was really meant to fit in with the sound design down to the, the vocal and the bass and the piano and everything. So I, I hope that all helps. <laughs> yeah, it, it absolutely does. And um, it's really interesting to hear the, even how important that a lot of people go, the film's finished. Well, it's not, it's kind of, this is part of the story. And I love the, yeah you explaining the journey of that to the end of the story so yeah Abe it's so great to get the chance to chat to you um I really really can't thank you enough for your time I know how busy you are but I wish you all the luck with all the nominations and congratulations on the wins the film's had so far so deserved and um yeah I hope we get the chance to chat again in the future definitely such a pleasure take care stay safe bye Abe thank you so much gone into the rain today Wet fields of green I know I don't stay long You always find me You say come on On the train today Call my name And you wave and scream But I can't hear anything I can't hear anything And you chase me Down the mountain Through this city But oh My country heart I'm only seeing green From the soundtrack to Sound of Metal, That's Green by Abraham Morder, rounding off this latest episode of Soundtracking with Abe, Darius and Riz. My huge thanks to all three of the boys for taking the time to talk to me. Sound of Metal is available to watch on Amazon Prime from the 12th of April and is coming to cinemas on May the 17th. Should you feel like venturing out? Yes, cinemas. I highly recommend that you watch this film. It is incredible. And the soundtrack, meanwhile, will be available via Nonsuch Records very, very soon. If you want to hear my first lockdown chat with Riz, head to edithbowman.com where you'll be able to find every single one of our 230 plus episodes of Soundtracking. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. We are at Soundtracking UK and please do also look up our YouTube channel for a show I put together as a companion piece to this podcast. Next up, continuing with the world of nominated films, we are very, very thrilled to bring you not only Kevin MacDonald talking about the Mauritanian, but also the fabulous Chloe Zhao talking about Nomadland. I very much look forward to the pleasure of your company then. (laughs) 